Tonight on Farage, we discuss the looming medical crisis and the fact that some people are now paying up to £20,000 out of their own pockets to get vital medical procedures. Could the private sector help save the National Health Service? We'll talk to Bob Seeley, backbench MP member for the Isle of Wight. He's a Conservative. He's furious at Boris Johnson's planning proposals and wants to defend England's green and pleasant land. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by the former Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone. Last week I talked about this looming medical crisis that I absolutely know is coming and I have to say it'll affect every single family in this country. The NHS is nearly five and a half million operations behind. GPs are not giving many consultations. A third of a million people who would have had serious procedures over the course of the last 18 months have not had those operations and it is leading to something that I thought would happen and I said last week that my mother had gone in for a knee replacement this time last week on Monday and that she'd gone privately. She's never gone privately in her life but couldn't bear the thought of a very, very long wait. And today's Daily Mail ran a story on the front page saying that people were paying up to £20,000 to go into hospital to have very important, urgent heart procedures. HCA Healthcare and Spire, and they're the two biggest owners of private hospitals in this country, both report uh, that in terms of heart operations, they've seen an increase of 20%. And on some neurological conditions, including you know, injections in spines and those kind of procedures, they've seen a 30% increase. Well, some people can afford to go privately and have those operations. Uh, for others, we hear they're even beginning to take out loans. But of course, the great danger here is we finish up in completely the opposite place to where we were in the 1940s, that we have a health system where those with money or able to take loans can get the medical procedures that they want, and those without money or access to money find themselves on a huge waiting list. And that would be a society of haves and have-nots for health. It would be incredibly divisive and indeed, I think, very, very unfair. And I'm saying all of these things in that I believe there is going to be this winter a huge health crisis uh, and it's going to lead to a lot of very, very unhappy people. I'm not saying these things just to be negative. I'm saying these things because the government needs to wake up to this PDQ. And let's try and find some sort of solution. So one idea that I want to explore tonight is could the private sector help save the NHS. I'm not talking about privatising the NHS. I know that'll be out on Twitter already from some of those who don't listen to what I say but jump to, the, jump to very ready conclusions. But I'm asking, is the private sector capable of lifting a huge burden off the NHS? And if it is, how do we fund it? Do we fund it through government money? Do we give people tax relief? Well, joining me now is Dr Wendy Denning, a private GP, been a private GP for 25 years. Uh, Wendy, good evening and welcome to GB News. Thank you. Good evening. So I'm, you know, looking at this, nearly five and a half million operations behind, uh, misdiagnoses from cancer to heart disease to dementia. I mean, uh, do you agree with me that we do have a really major health crisis just around the corner? Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. 
I mean, I've spoken to some people who are involved with the organization and that sort of thing, and they have talked about the fact that the waiting lists are so long, they don't even know where to start with them. So, so I mean, realist realistically, Wendy, we're never, ever going to catch up with this waiting list as things are currently organised, are we? No, I don't think so. I agree so have that. you seen, as a private GP, have you seen, and as I say, I quoted HCA and Spire, the two biggest owners of private hospital and healthcare provision, have you yourself as a GP seen an uptick in the numbers of people coming to you wanting consultations? I have. I mean, I am always busy, um, but I have been particularly busy with people that I would say wouldn't normally afford private healthcare, but have sorted out because they want somebody to be seeing them in person. That's been one thing. I mean, I've been back in my office since last June, seeing people face to face since last June. Um, and, you know, people have wanted to see a doctor in person. I think one of the things that one of the things I find in private practice that's kind of annoying is that the assumption that if you're in private practice, you there's a sort of overall global assumption that you're there to take advantage of people. And the truth of the matter is that I've been in private practice for a long time because I wanted to practice the sort of medicine I want to practice. And I think that the private healthcare will have to help out. But I do think, and this is no disrespect whatsoever to the NHS, because I've always been a big fan of the NHS, but the NHS will have to look at what it's good at and what it's not good at and have to look at improving the things it's not so good at. Well, um, I mean, right now we're being told that hip operations, for argument's sake, could be a two-year waiting list. But, of course, mm -hmm. if we were to get a big COVID wave in the autumn and once again effectively, you know, empty the hospitals and wait for the influx, uh, that two years could become three years. I mean, who's to say? So the question I really want to ask you, Wendy Denning, is... If we decided, right, let's take hip replacements as one specific area. If we were to go to the private healthcare sector, how much of that burden could the private sector deal with at this moment in time? And would it be able to gear up quickly? Well, I think there's two questions there, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, the private health sector is... The many people that are in the private health sector in both the NHS and the private health sector. So one of the things you don't want to do is to drag those people who are in the NHS away from their NHS practice and make it more difficult. But one thing, just there are some very practical issues that could improve. I mean, I recently was at one of the top pediatric hospitals, the top pediatric hospital in the country with my daughter, unfortunately, for a relatively rare medical condition. The top consultant there, who's fantastic, was ringing the, the MRI department, ringing the blood test department. She couldn't get through. No one could get through. Can you still see me and hear me? Uh, she yeah. couldn't get through. That is a waste of somebody's really useful time. So mm. I, to me, there are things like this where... If you use the consultants that you've got more appropriately, gave them the support in the background that they desperately need. I mean, anyone could have been making those phone calls. She didn't. In the end, I said, I'll go down and get them to call you. I mean, it's things like that where you've got top consultants who are the top of their game. 
not having the support, that does not make the system efficient at all. So it's it's things like that, very simple things like that, really, that could really improve us. So that's so that's about management, organisation and efficiency. And I understand absolutely the point that you're making. But let me ask you this question. I mean, I did see it was encouraging to see that more people are going on to study medicine this year. It's a much, much bigger number than it was before the pandemic mm -hmm. of people going into uh, wanting to become doctors, wanting to become nurses. But, hey, there's a lag time, isn't there, with that of several there years. There is a lag. Is it possible that we have enough doctors and nurses in this country through the NHS operating efficiently and the private sector taking as much of the burden as it possibly can and will work out ways that's to be paid for. Do we have enough doctors and nurses within both systems to be able in some way to really cut in to this massive backlog of over five million operations? I don't think we do. I certainly don't think we have enough nurses. We are quite aware that people have stepped back from nursing and it hasn't helped that they weren't given the pay rise until the final hour, which from my perspective, you know, they're already badly paid. And if you want people to support you and to give their very best, you need to actually give them some credit for that. And that is a financial credit that's so important. But even doctors, if I look at, I live in, uh, you know, outside of London, I'm in a reasonably, uh, you know, nice area. They have difficulty recruiting GPs to this area. I mean, Really? So th there can't be enough doctors, but I would like to look at not just about recruitment, I look at how you keep doctors in the profession, because I see a lot of my colleagues retiring at 55, 60, but 55. Why? Because they are absolutely burnt out. Now, why is it that they are getting so burnt out? What? Who's looking at that system, supporting those people and making sure that they stay in the system, not just for the finances, but because of doing a job that they really enjoy, that really are contributing? Because my experience of medical school was that most of the people that were in medical school with me were basically fairly altruistic. They want to make a difference. They sure. wanted yeah. to help people. No, I'm sure. But so is Wendy, if we're going to cut this backlog in some way, we're going to have to find for now, we're going to have to find more people trained and from overseas, aren't we? We are, but we also need, as you mentioned earlier, to look at the funding. And I would very much like to look at you know, I've worked in the Canadian medical system. I'm well aware of the German and the Dutch medical systems. All of those have employers contributing to uh, people, people's, uh, to the, the, you know, the National Health Service in those countries. Yeah. I mean, you know, they all do. And we somehow don't look at that as a feasible option, which I think, I mean, and we're not talking huge amounts of money here. We're talking maybe £50 a month for, you know, a, an employee to have, uh, you know, to have reasonable, for that money to be going into the NHS. The problem is you, you can pour money into a system, but if you don't improve the efficiency of a system, yeah. then it's well, not use, usefully used. No, these are huge challenges that Sajid Javid faces, and he's going to have to perhaps have some quite radical thinking in terms of NHS management. Wendy Denning, mm -hmm. thank you very much indeed for joining us tonight here on GB News. And that was...
quite a sobering thought, wasn't it? Just how difficult this is. Now we have red lights and green lights and amber lights and amber plus. And now we're going to have an amber watch list, if you weren't confused. But Boris Johnson today was out travelling earlier, talking to journalists while visiting Airbus in Stevenage. And this is what he had to say have to have a balanced approach and uh, what I want to see is a, something that is as simple and as user friendly uh, for people as possible but obviously the, uh, the, the double vaccinations that uh, we've got really do offer uh, the way forward. Well, Prime Minister, I don't know about simplicity. It seems pretty confusing and complicated to me. Uh, and I think there are millions of people right now saying, heck, we're all in August already. The kids are going back to school in about four weeks. Do we take that foreign holiday or don't we? And I, I think the whole thing is marred in total confusion. But perhaps my next guest, Julia Beau Saeed, can solve the problem for me. CEO at Advantage Travel Partnership, the UK's largest independent travel agent and travel management company consortium. Tell us, should we be understanding this traffic light system or are you as confused as the rest of us? Well, good evening, Nigel. Well, we should be understanding it. Whether we do understand it is a completely another question. Um, and it's a shame because actually the, the framework is pretty simple if it was kept in the way it was intended. But we've had a complete mishmash all the way through changes, Amber Plus added in, now potentially um, this, this Amber watch list, which actually we've now had a report this evening suggesting it has been ditched. Um, but it is complex. Um, constant change does not help consumer confidence whatsoever. I mean, would it not be simpler just to have red and green? And we might understand where we are in that case. Absolutely. It would be very simple. If you, if you cut, there were clear rules in place so that the travel industry could work with that, help consumers, and that travellers knew exactly what they were, when they were booking something, what to expect and what the rules are. Um, unfortunately, as we've gone through the, the last few months, it has added, we've had added complexities. We've had traffic like updates when they shouldn't have happened, when they weren't supposed to happen. Um, so it's not, you know, it, it's no surprise that the travel industry, you know, one of the last economic sectors is still in real difficulties. Um, but travellers are fearful. Everyone is fearful of booking just in case something goes wrong. So we had France, didn't we? You know, we, it was all announced that from this Monday, people could come in if they'd been double jabbed from the USA and the EU. And then we learned a couple of days later that France actually wasn't included in this. Um, and then we were told, but maybe in the next couple of days, that would be reversed. And now we're being told that Spain possibly could be going on the Amber watch list. Uh, do, I mean, do you have any predictions? I know it's difficult. But, you know, there are people watching this thinking about, you know, do we drive across to France? Do we book a flight to Spain? Uh, have you got any sort of good guess as to what might happen in the next two or three days? Yeah, not, not at all. And actually, no one, no one can guess. And I think anyone that tries to guess good has guessed wrong. So um, my advice to anybody looking to book is really think it, you can travel. I've traveled. I've just booked to go away. I'm going away in the next couple of weeks. You can travel. Travel is different. You have to look at who you book with and how you book and make sure that you have the financial protection in place before you make any decisions. Yeah, well, listen, thank you for joining us. And it clearly, you're none the wiser than we are. But thank you for sharing that with us. I, I have to say this is extraordinary. And, and I really mean it when I say there are millions of people deeply frustrated 
at this current moment in time. They simply can't believe uh, that the Prime Minister can say, well, on the one hand, but on the other. And it is all really very, very difficult. Another issue that the Prime Minister has been facing is he wants us to build at least 300,000 houses every year. And so quite major changes to the planning rules have been put before Parliament. It's met with opposition. Theresa May has spoken strongly out against it. Um, and I'll be talking in a moment to Conservative Member of Parliament, Bob Seeley. He's the MP for the Isle of Wight, which is the largest constituency in the, in the United Kingdom by population. And he's busy fighting as part of a backbench rebellion because he wants to preserve England's green and pleasant land. We'll ask him in a moment whether he thinks he's going to succeed. A looming health crisis is coming. Of that, I've got absolutely no doubt, and I say that on the day. But the Daily Mail revealed that some people are paying up to £20,000 to have heart procedures because they don't want to be on the NHS waiting list. I'm wondering whether the private sector can help relieve the burden, perhaps even save the National Health Service. And as ever, you know, your views are welcome. GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can also send in, of course, the barrage, the farage questions, which I get to in the last couple of minutes of the programme. And I do read them out and try my best to answer them sight unseen. Thus far, Stephen on email says, I cannot see how the private sector can help cut the NHS waiting lists as so many private sector consultants and surgeons also work for the NHS. All I can see happening is desperate people spending huge amounts of money to jump the NHS queue. Well, Stephen, you know, you've got a very fair point there. There is this very odd system where a lot of doctors and surgeons work in both systems. What I'm saying is that if only those with money can get these operations, and in percentage terms, there aren't that many of them, well, it's good for those individuals but it doesn't help everybody else very much because the volume isn't big enough. And we finish up in a society, a healthcare society, of the haves and have-nots. And that would lead to comparisons. I can see them coming with America. So what I'm trying to examine is could the private sector be able to have enough volume to be able to seriously help relieve the burden? And, you know, Wendy Canning, our doctor that was on earlier, she made the point that actually... There simply aren't enough doctors and nurses really to do this, but that the NHS itself needs some greater efficiencies. Jack on Twitter says, proper funding is the only thing that will save the NHS. Well, that's fine, but where's the limit on it? Uh, and, and, and actually, just spending money, if you haven't got enough hospitals, if you haven't got enough hospital beds, if you haven't got enough doctors, you haven't got enough nurses, you can throw what you want at it in the short term. You're still not going to be able to dent, seriously, that waiting list of nearly five and a half million people. Another viewer says on email, there really needs to be a serious and honest debate about the NHS. It's too cumbersome and unfit for purpose. It's a bottomless money pit. Well, it's fine for you to say that, and interesting that you sent it in without your name. Uh, this has been one of the political debates that it's literally been impossible to have in this country, uh, because whenever there's any criticism of the way the NHS operates, that is taken as a slight on the men and women working as doctors and nurses who are doing their damnedest. And it's not. You know, there are people genuinely now trying to start a debate about NHS reform. Whether Sajid Javid, whether 
Boris Johnson want to go there? We don't yet know. But they're going to have to do something, and that's one of the points I'm making. Neil says on email, surely the nationalised health service is over. We can learn a lot from the German model. France too, perhaps. Colin on email says, do you really believe the private sector has the capacity and desire to deal with complex cases. We should have increased hospital capacity before COVID and managed things better during COVID. One of the reasons, folks, that we don't have enough hospital capacity is because our population is much, much bigger than anybody predicted, possibly three or four million bigger than anybody predicted. Um, and it's very difficult to plan long-term projects like hospitals if you haven't got a clue, given your border policy, how many people there are even going to be in the country. And I, I think in some ways that leads in a bit to the next argument, uh, because Boris Johnson is saying that he wants to hit a target of 300,000 new houses every year. Now, over the last few years, on average, we've built about 170,000 houses every year. Last year, uh, you know, it was a bit higher. But, but you can see there is a problem. And to solve this, Boris Johnson is trying, his government are trying, to ease the planning rules, which can be lengthy and can be cumbersome. It's led to Theresa May saying it means we'll build the wrong houses in the wrong places. And what she's saying is it means it's the home counties where we'll see houses being built, when actually there are other parts of the country further north that perhaps need them even more. Now, this has led to, not just from Theresa May, it's led to quite a major potential backbench rebellion, and one of those very much in this fight is Bob Seeley, the Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight. Bob, good evening. Good evening, Nigel, um, and good evening to your growing number of, of viewers on GB News. Thank you very much. Great to see you, and a lovely view. It's not raining, and of course... No, no, not quite. And you have one of the most beautiful... Uh, parts of southern England that you represent. Uh, you've also, of course, got the biggest electorate um, of any seat uh, in, in the Houses of Parliament. So you're fighting Boris on these planning rules. What specifically do you want to see changed? Well, I, I just want to understand what the principles are behind what is being planned. If it's just shoving more houses in places, I think you're going to have a problem because we've had 50 years. OK, I'll take the Isle of Wight. For 50 years, we haven't been NIMBYs, we've been YIMBYs, we've been in our backyard. We've increased our population by 50,000, 50% over 50 years. At the same time, Hull, Bradford, uh, Liverpool, uh, Manchester, Birmingham, uh, Blackpool have all got not relatively smaller, but in absolute senses smaller. So if you keep ramming housing into the southeast of England, but also in Tory suburbs and rural areas up and down the country, you are overpopulating some areas and underpopulating others. And people, our voters, as you know, Nigel, well enough, are getting fed up because they're saying, what's happening to our greenfields? What's, you know, our surgeries are under pressure. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the infrastructure on the Isle of Wight. So for sure, we need houses. I just want to correct your stats, if I may. We yeah. built 252,000 last year. No, I did it, say that. I did it, say last year was higher. I said the average for the last 10 years was about 170,000. You're absolutely right on that. But if Boris, the, the, the 300,000 figure is purely arbitrary. If, and it's based on the 200, 2014 figures, which are now arguably out of date. If Boris had chosen a different year, we'd be hitting our targets already. Yeah, but Bob, you know, what you're really saying then is you want local councils to decide this rather than central government targets. Is that really the nub of what this rebellion is about? 
but we, we, we all need to build houses in moderate numbers. But if you take the Isle of Wight, our natural population is going to, that's everyone on the island at the moment, without folks moving from the mainland, it's going to decline by about 9,000 over the next 15 years. So actually, we don't need any houses because if, you, if the island was just looking after island population, we're going to be about 10,000 souls smaller in 15 years' time as some of our older folks sadly die off. But So our housing market on the island is entirely skewed by retirees paying cash. But because of the, some of the ridiculous algorithms and methodologies used, we are then told we need to build 600 houses a year for a declining population. Now, if we had limited space, that's fine. But 70% of our development is on greenfield land. That affects our tourism economy. People come to the Isle of Wight for the beauty that you see behind me, not for the beauty of our bungalow housing estates. And that's a massive chunk of our economy. So if the government is saying, actually, we're going to squeeze your tourism economy over the next 20, 30 years until you become suburbanized, that has significant impact. It has significant impact on infrastructure, on services, on quality of life, on, on a landscape celebrated by Tennyson and Turner and all these other folks. And these are big questions. But in some ways, um, Bob Seeley, in some ways, these are the chickens coming home to roost for a Conservative Party that's had a prime minister in office since 2010 that pledged in that 2010 election and subsequently that it would reduce net migration to the United Kingdom to the tens of thousands, and it's been running uh, for much of that for between quarter of a million and 300,000. Uh, you know, over the last few years, population increase of over half a million every single year. In a sense, one of the reasons we're having to build so many houses is that the Conservative government has so completely failed in everything it told the electorate it would do in terms of immigration numbers. In immigration control, I'm not going to argue against you because the, the facts support the argument. There are mitigations. The fact is we had a growing economy. We were still part of the European Union. We were taking lots of very talented and capable people and we had a massive growing economy. So, I, yes, I mean, those are mitigations, but, but you're right. We have left the European Union. Let's see what happens with immigration. But, I mean, again, if you use more up-to-date figures, Nigel, like the 2018 figures, we don't need 300 homes a year. Again, another point is that we need two points, if I may briefly make it. Yep. Government needs to grip this. If it wants levelling up, it needs to drive infrastructure up north to the northeast, to the north, to the northwest. And it needs to drive those homes and that investment with it. Because if you are putting infrastructure down here, you can kiss goodbye to the levelling up agenda. Well, Second point, very briefly, yeah, we do need housing local people. We need housing for local young people, but not on greenfield, low-density greenfield housing estates, which are car dependent and which are dreadful for the environment and dreadful for climate change, depending on what you want to do about it. And there are different opinions among sensible people that, you know, some people are uncomfortable articulating nowadays because they get, get it in the neck from the left and all that good stuff. But we do need houses, but we need houses on brownfield sites in places like Newport and Ride and Sandown to regenerate our towns, our beautiful towns, and also to preserve our landscape for our quality of life and for the, for the tourism economy. But what we're getting, and what I'm going to now, is yeah. a planning meeting in Knighton Village Hall where people are fed up because, yet again, you have another greenfield housing development in an area of outstanding natural beauty. Well, it's a pickle, isn't it? Because the Cheshire and Amersham by-election was lost, and yes, it was a by-election, and you can get funny results, but many thought that planning issues and building in Buckinghamshire was a key reason that the Conservatives lost that seat. And yet, Bob, and this is amazing, the Financial Times at the weekend did a lot of work on Conservative donations. And according to them, going through the Electoral Commission figures, since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, 
17 point, that's two years, 17.9 million pounds in donations has come to the Conservative Party from donors with property interests and links to developers. So, in some ways, in some ways, you've really got a bit of a dilemma here, haven't you? You're being funded by the big property magnets, and yet your voters don't like the result of it. Nigel, again, you, you make a fair point, and all I can say is, if we have a choice between voters and donors, for me, it's always going to be voters. Uh, and I hope that is reflected all the way up and down the Conservative Party. I mean, look, I haven't come across any examples of conflict of interest thus far. I hope there aren't any, and I hope we're not being led by that. Uh, all I can say is I, I hope we're not. I'm just a backbench MP trying to do my job. But if yeah. I get wind of that, I'm going to go ballistic about it. All right, well, have a look at it. Um, and, Bob, finally, are you going to win this rebellion? Well, we're, we're winning in chunks. So we, we, the government changed its mind on the planning algorithm, the mutant algorithm last year, thankfully. Um, and now they're looking to uh, listen. So listening's great, but we need action. And what we want is, is a planning bill which is community-led, which is levelling up-led and which is environmentally intelligent and environmentally sensitive. What we don't want is a planning bill that gives carte blanche uh, to developers, the land bank, even more properties, because it is a road to nowhere. Okay, we'll be watching very carefully, very closely, and thank you ahead of your village hall meeting tonight for joining us. Well, there we are, planning, house building, big, big issue for the Conservative Party. Well, in a moment, my What the Farage moment concerns the great anti-vaxxer, Piers Corbyn. I promise you, it's well worth the wait. You know, if, if we can obviously help in any way to, to help your campaign, that's obviously going to help us. We, we've got shared interests. It clearly is. I mean, but, yeah, OK. No, absolutely. We actually even you know, brought along a little something today that was just a token of you know, our intention of helping out with your campaign. I want to see. So if, yes. <laughs> yeah, and we, we like some, to keep it off, oh, wow. off the book. <laughs> but this is obviously just a sort of statement of intent. We'd love to keep that funding you. Um, so there's, there's 10,000 pounds there. That's astounding. I mean, that, yeah, it's fun. That is brilliant. It's quite rare to have 10,000 pounds in, in some sort of hard work. To the whole, to the whole, you know, that's just, that's just a bit from the same. Well, as long as I can accept it with, there's no insistence uh, on any policy changes or anything that I'm doing. And I appreciate you're not, we obviously are not asking for a change of policy or anything, but if there is anything that can be done, to focus a bit on Pfizer and Moderna, that might be a that would be helpful for be us. A useful thing. Okay, AZ not um, a, uh, a mRNA. Yeah, you know, just which is a, which is a fact, but it is. I mean, you know, we're not saying change any policy, but if they could be slightly ignored more, that would obviously be helpful yeah. for us. Well, what the Farage? Can you believe that? Well, that was two guys, Josh Pete Peters and Archie Manners, um, and they make YouTube films. They're young YouTubers. I guess it's almost like a sort of modern-day equivalent of Candid Camera, um, and they go around. Um, and you could say they tried to deceive Piers Corbyn, but equally, I would say that this man of great principle who stands up in Trafalgar Square and leads these anti-lockdown and anti-vax protests. Um, it seemed to me that his principles weren't all that firm when it came potentially to receiving some money. I mean, you must obviously make your own minds up about that. Uh, I thought it was very funny. Uh, and I think, you know, there are people out there with genuine concern 
about the vaccine. Of course there are. There always are with all vaccines, and I understand that. And, and some of those people have got legitimate arguments. But I'm not so sure that a man like this should be one of the main leaders of this campaign. It seems to me that he's quite happy to sell his soul and, indeed, his principles too. As I say, you make your own minds up. I thought in many ways it was really rather funny. Now, in a moment, on Talking Pints, somebody politically, it would be difficult on almost every single issue for me to be further away from. So let's see if over a beer, Ken Livingston and I can have a serious, sensible and civilised debate. And there's some more feedback on that last part about planning. Michael says that's what the Tories want, so they don't have to provide a level of care. Stuart says, healthcare, you mean, Stuart says, our local GP has been practicing patient avoidance since the start of the pandemic. It takes a face to face argument in the surgery to even get an appointment, and then they simply refuse often to answer the phone. And this is a big, it, it really is a big thing. You know, people want to meet their GPs. They want to see them face to face. Dentists, well, they meet their patients face to face. Uh, and this is something I think that really does need to change. Adam on Facebook says it's a bottomless money pit, the NHS, with a top heavy management structure. Senior trust executives earn an obscene amount of money to the detriment of nurses and HCAs. France has a better system entirely. And I think that's one of the things, one of the debates that we will have. You know, as this winter health crisis, which could be huge in scale, uh, comes upon us, you know, we will look at our neighbours and see, and we'll do it on this programme, we'll examine how do our neighbours fund their healthcare systems and kind of why is it, particularly in France, that they seem to have much better results with cancer, heart disease and strokes. Now, joining me, Talking Pints, is Ken Livingston. And before the camera turns to him, I promise you... There has not been a scuffle in the corridor. We have not had a punch-up. But, Ken, thanks for joining me. You've been in the wars a little bit. Well, yes, on Saturday I stepped over the dog. She was sleeping in the corridor. And she jumped up and that knocked me over. So, I, I, I mean, I, I felt like I might claim Boris Johnson had punched me. But it wouldn't be true. Anyway, cheers and welcome cheers, to Talking Pies. Ken, a long career. In politics. Since 1969, I've joined the party. Long career, controversial career. Really? <laughs> I heard you speak when I think I was 18. <laughs> it would have been 1982. You'd taken over as leader of the GLC yeah. <clears throat> the previous year. You came to my school in South London and spoke. <laughs> I remember, I've never told you that before, but I remember it very, very well. It clearly didn't encourage you to join the Labour Party. <laughs> no, I think you've sent me the other way, really. Um, what was interesting about all of that period is we now talk a lot about identity politics. Mm. But in a sense, you guys invented this 40 years ago, didn't you? Well, that wasn't what I... When I came into politics, whether it was... And I followed John Major onto Lambeth Council. He became mm. Tory mm. Prime Minister. But everyone came into politics to do things for their local community, build more council housing, improve schools and all of that. But now you're right, it's an awful lot of people want to be a celebrity and all that. I mean, and for me, the defining point was on the day I became the leader of the GLC, Thatcher made a speech to the Scottish Conservatives saying... 
My plan was to impose on Britain a communist tyranny like Eastern Europe. Now, until she made that speech, no one knew my name. Then suddenly all the Tory press so were there. So she did you a huge favour. <laughs> well, she created me, yeah. And then, in a sense, I was revived by Tony Blair. He's always attempted to stop me becoming mayor. Well, that, we're going to come to that, because yeah. that actually was very, very funny. <laughs> but come on, Ken, let's be honest about it. You know, you had, at the time, on the GLC, mm. and in particular... Mm in councils like Lambeth, you know, Red Ted Knight, Linda Bellos. I mean, this was pretty hard left stuff, wasn't it? Well, not really. I mean, <laughs> if you look back, I got elected to be the GRC leader to cut the fares, to build more council housing. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I've never read Marx, you know. I came into politics to do things. Um, but I was immediately demonised as this mad trot. Whether you were the mad trot or not, the point I'm making is the Labour Party in London had plenty of mad trots, didn't well, they? We, well, don't get we'd had the Wilson government of the 1960s, which had actually really failed to deliver on all its promises. And so when that was defeated, there was a surge of new, mainly young people coming in, wanted to get a better Labour Party. And a lot of them were on, you know, a small minority were trots, yeah. Most were broadly on the left, um, but there were some on the right. But it turns out now, that, I mean, and Lambeth was the most controversial of all, mm. you know, these, yeah. these, these really quite bellicose figures, uh, and they were pretty hard left. And now it turns out, with all these dramatic rows that were going on at the town hall, that actually, you know, in one of the care homes in Lambeth, there was sexual abuse on a horrendous scale going on. I know. I've been really shocked watching... I, the news about all of this, because I was on Lambeth Council from 71 to 78. In all that time, no one ever said anything about abuse in our care homes. But then I was on the Housing Committee, not the Social Services Committee. Um, and I look back on that and I think, you know, if Ted Knight, who then became the, the yeah. Labour leader, yeah. had heard about that, he would have clamped down on it and dealt with it. I think it was just that a lot of people working the council may have known some of this was going on, but they never came and told the councillors. Well, it's a pretty shocking failure yeah. at whatever level, yeah. uh, and, and, and the numbers involved are quite remarkable. So the GLC, you were the boss of the GLC, you became leader of it in slightly controversial circumstances, mm -hmm. um, and Margaret Thatcher abolished it. Mm -hmm. And, OK, we had a, a few years without it, but then it comes back mm -hmm. as the London Assembly with the London Mayor. You run and you win in 2000, not surprisingly. Mm. You know, I, I thought you'd win in 2000, mm. and, and you're a London figure, and, and Labour does have some... I mean, Boris did well, but Labour does have some advantages in London. Mm. But 2004 was remarkable. I mean, you had this massive fallout with, with Blair, basically, mm. hadn't you? Well, I disagreed. He got involved in America's wars in the Middle East. It's always been a disaster. We should never get involved in, in those wars. And actually, they've never been really about trying to create some nice democracy. It's about controlling the oil resources there. It's, you know, it's not been about doing stuff for the local people. So we had many disagreements. But the thing that appalled me the most about Blair, I, just a few weeks after he became prime minister, he passed a law that had been drawn up by the Tories that cut benefits for single mums. And I remember on that night, about 40 of us Labour MPs voted against that. Mm -hmm. I, but I remember many other Labour MPs, as they came through the, the division lobby, 
there were tears coming down their face because they were appalled at what they've had to do. But they knew if they didn't do it, they might not get a job in Blair's and, government. And that's how the whip system works. Yeah, and how, yeah I know. It's, I'm afraid it's a Oddly enough, I never got a job from Blair. No, no well, I didn't think you would somehow. <laughs> but So in 2004, you run again as London mm-hmm. Mayor, but without the Labour Party supporting you? Oh, no, they did. Basically, after, after I became Mayor, I met Blair... We had an amiable chat and so on, but I wasn't brought back into the party until after the congestion charge, because everyone assumed the congestion charge was going to be a disaster. Um, well, and <laughs> if you're a self-employed van driver, it is a disaster, Ken, isn't it? <laughs> but it, I mean, immediately congestion went down massively, air pollution but went what, down 12%. But what but, about the self-employed? What about the people going about their business? Yeah, but basically you can't just have a clogged-up central London. It was disastrous. And basically... In you know, the eight years Boris Johnson was mayor, 76,000 Londoners died because of the air quality. And one of the things I started to do when I was mayor was introduce you know, attempts to crack down on the most polluting vehicles and things like that. But that's, you know, that, that, that's the real key to all of this. If you've got a city that's completely clogged up at the centre, it, it, it doesn't really work. You want everybody possible to use public transport, only drive if you have to. Uh, if you're anyway, a social worker, has got to be going around visiting lots of people and so on, yeah, you, you need to have a car and drive. Or a taxi driver. Or a taxi driver. Or a van. Oh, yeah. and, and as you know, I mean, now, there are all, it seems to be more vans than cars on the road <laughs> with all these home <laughs> deliveries and, and all the rest of it. So you approve of the cycle lanes? Pardon? Do you approve of the cycle lanes in London? Oh, yeah, I, I, I st- I'd done the work preparing for that. Um, but then I, I lost to Boris just before we were going to introduce it, and he called it Boris Bikes, wasn't whatever it was. Um, I didn't get the credit for it. So 2008, you've done one long stint as leader of the GLC, you've done a long stint as Mayor of London. What was your biggest failure? I, I think, basically, my biggest failure was not to go into the Labour Party much younger. I didn't join until I was 23. I was spending my life breeding frogs and toads and working with <laughs> Londoners. Newts, newts, newts and newts, yeah. What on earth got you into that? Well, you know, I grew up in that post-war world where, I mean, the thing that really changed that, I was born in 1945, so we got TV when I was 10, and there's David Attenborough doing all these animal programmes. He's still, he's still on them. I he's know, still, I know. Still doing it. But then, I mean, my ambition was no politics. I, I wanted a job at London Zoo, but when I left school, they didn't have a vacancy. <laughs> but literally, if I'd got a job at London Zoo, I must have never gone into politics. I would have been so besotted with working mm. with all those animals. I loved it. But you got into part, you mm. got into, you did these two big stints. What was the one thing you really regret doing? I. I don't, I don't think there's anything I, mean, I, I regret doing. I mean, I, I've always been controversial, a bit like you, because, like you, I always say what I believe. Mm. You can't say that about most politicians. No, 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 that's true. You've got that in common. And, of yeah. course, 40 years ago when I became leader of the Jersey, to come out and support lesbian and gay rights, inconceivable. I mean, to support women's rights, challenge racism, all those things, I mean, that was considered all over the place. Yeah, and perhaps a bit, little bit too friendly for But then some. now they've all become the norm. But a lot of Labour MPs were saying, this is, we shouldn't be doing with all of this, we just focus on class issues, you know. Yeah, I mean, as I say, that was the beginning of identity politics and it has become mainstream and you were there. Um, I mean, similarly, there were many that felt you were far too close to the Irish Republican movement. Well, I mean, every year, at least once, sometimes twice, the IRA would set off a bomb in London. 
And it, Thatcher's line then as Prime Minister was, these are just criminals and psychopaths, we'll never talk to them. And I knew we've got to negotiate, get a deal to stop the bombing. And I, I invited Jerry Adams to come to London. Thatcher banned him from coming, so I flew out there. And virtually the first thing he said is, we know this can't go on, we, we're ready to negotiate a deal. But Thatcher wouldn't do that, and we had in another decade, I think another, I don't know how many thousand more people died. Um, and we could have done that deal. I mean, you don't get, for all my criticism of Tony Blair, the moment he became Prime Minister, he started talking to the IRA, the violence was all over within a few weeks. Yeah, I mean... It came at a hell of a price, though. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of convicted murderers being let out uh, mm. of prison, and, and, and it wasn't straightforward. Ken, the 2012 Olympics was, was, was a great moment mm. for London, wasn't it? I mean, it really was a big success. Oh, mm. There were lots of Olympic sceptics, and I must admit, in the early days, I was one of them. I wasn't <laughs> so sure. No, I, was, I, I wasn't sure it was going to work. Um, I mean, that was an amazing achievement. And, and kind of... <clears throat> you must have felt slightly... I won't say bitter, but... You must have felt slightly jealous that Boris was able to bask in all of that well, because... You mean, see, I only bid for the Olympic Games to transform the East End of London because it was derelict, polluted. Um, and oddly enough, I mean, back in 1980, the Tory leader of the GLC, Horace Cutler, yeah. he bid for the, um, to do the Olympic Games for exactly the same reason. And, I mean, if you look, most Olympic Games cost a, a country an awful lot of money. Mm. Eh? And so I think the only reason for staging an Olympics is to transform some run-down old area so there's a real legacy. And that's still going on, still new homes being built, new jobs being created. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't about sport. I, it was about transforming the East End. And after, after being Mayor of London, you did a radio show with David Mellor, mm. which was very successful. I used to come and appear <laughs> on that programme quite regularly with you. And then your whole sort of career in politics ends in... Quite bizarre circumstances. And, 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 and Ken, let's be frank, you know, some pretty heavy charges of anti-Semitism. I mean, you, who'd always well, been the great anti-racist campaigner, yeah, and, and, yet, and yet, come on, Ken, for a man of your experience and wisdom, you know, quoting Hitler in anything isn't very helpful, is it? I didn't quote Hitler. I simply pointed out that in the summer of 1933, um, the Nazi government and the German uh, Zionist movement did a deal, and they migrated 60,000 of Germany's Jews to what's now Israel. And if they hadn't done that deal, those 60,000 would have followed the 6 million into the gas chambers. And so, although they loathed each other, it was a deal that saved the lives of 60,000 Jews, and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are still living in Israel today. And yet, the charges against you of anti-Semitism, oh, yeah. of, of being beyond the pale... I mean, it was an error of judgment, wasn't it? You actually look, in the eight years I was mayor of London, anti-Semitic incidents recorded by the Metropolitan Police went down by 50%. Mm. Boris Johnson's eight years, they doubled. Now, not because he's anti-Semitic, but no. he didn't do the bloody no. job. No, he isn't. No, he isn't. There's no way we're going to have Boris <laughs> called that. You look at the Labour Party today, Ken, <clears throat> you know, you've been in and out of the Labour Party more than once over the years, but the Labour Party, the socialist movement, is in your heart. I know it is, and I know you believe in these things. Very strongly, um, and, 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 you know, that's where, as I say, you and I have that in common. Where do you see Brexit? I mean, are you, is Brexit now finished for you as an issue? Is it done? Are we moving on? 
Well, I don't think we'll ever have a vote to go back in. No. And we, we've now got, you know, the government finally getting around to trying to tackle the problems of all of that. Um, it's clearly cost a lot of jobs, and we've got to have a... a has a, it? Has it really? Oh, yeah, it has. But, a billion going but, into Sunderland. It, and you're yes, still a Ramona, aren't you? But, you, you are in a position where you've now got to draw up a proper economic strategy for Britain outside the EU mm -hmm. and create new jobs, in, get more investment. The, the biggest cause of success in an economy is investment. And our investment is well below what it should be. I mean, if you actually look, um, the, the level of investment I mean, in the Great Depression in America in the, the 1930s, yeah. Roosevelt wins massive increase in investment. Mm. You look at the Attlee government in 1945, big increase in investment. I mean, and, you know, 12 years, 17 years later when I left school, every kid got a job. Yeah. That didn't mean unemployed person. Whether we can, how, much, how much we can invest with $2 trillion of debt at the moment <clears throat> is a good question. But, Ken, finally, I must ask you, is, is life now, is it happy, contented retirement? Are you still beavering away? Oh, no, I'd still rather be mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers. Well, that was Ken Livingston, and whatever you think, Whatever you've thought about Ken Livingston over the years, the one refreshing thing is he does actually say what he means and he believes it. Well, great stuff. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, left and right can disagree on things, but one of the things we want to prove here with this show on GB News is that we can do so in a civilised environment. And I think doing it over a beer in a pub atmosphere, I think it kind of helps. Now, let's get to the last section of the show. It is Barrage the Farage. And as I always tell you, you know, I don't see any of this before I get it. So Mandy on email says to me, the private sector can help the NHS. It's been doing it for years. I had an operation in 2012, which was done privately via the NHS because there was such a long waiting list. Well, yeah, I mean, that is true. But, but if all the private sector can do is to do a few operations for those that can afford it or perhaps the NHS pay for, then we're not going to solve it. What I'm thinking here or trying to look forward to is can we find a way that the private sector can massively up the amount it can do so that we can relieve that massive 5.3 million NHS waiting list. It's a real worry. It's going to be a major problem this Christmas. People are always demanding fixed dates for the end of restrictions and travel advice and then complain when they change. Boris can't win. Well, I tell you what, it'd be nice if he actually gave us a clear message, wouldn't it? When we get one of the leading travel consultants in the country uh, coming on who hasn't got a clue what the amber list is actually going to mean. Uh, I think we've all got a bit of a problem. John says, we don't have a housing crisis in the EU. In the UK, we have a population crisis. I have to say, I do rather agree with that. What do you make of Keir Starmer? Well, uh, with all this government uh, getting so many things wrong, Labour is still consistently behind in the polls. Does he need to go in order for Labour to win a general election? I've, got, I've only got... 50 seconds left, but I'm going to bring Ken back in because he's finishing his pint. Is Starmer the right man to lead Labour into the next general yes, election? Yes, he will be an absolutely good Prime Minister because he came into politics to do things for his local community and improve things, not to be a celebrity. And that's why Smanny's slipping a bit behind in the polls because he's not doing all the celebrity nonsense. Well, there we go. And Alan on email says, Nigel, if you could choose anyone in the whole world to have talking pints with, who would you choose and why? It's got to be Ken, hasn't it, for at least being honest. We might not agree on stuff, but he's honest. 
Well, look, thank you all for joining me this evening. This health debate will go on and on and on. Coming up next, it's Colin Brazier standing in for Andrew Neil. First, though, it's the weather where you are.